Too often we hear about people whose lives are interrupted by drug addiction and time in prison. These stories often end tragically, especially in the era of opioids. But sometimes there's a happy ending. My guest today was a gifted student with an academic and athletic scholarship. However, experiences with drinking and drugs interrupted that path and led her to 10 years in a prison cell. I was the worst kind of drug addict. I wasn't like once in a while user. I was, uh, one day I stayed up for 11 days in a row without sleep because I used to live and lived to use. I was raped, stabbed, handcuffed to a railroad track and left for dead. I was, I had my firstborn child in the penitentiary handcuffed to a bed and none of those things made me stop. So the, the thing is that, that the drug, that the, an addict like myself is that's not a bad person trying to get good. It's a sick person who does not know how to get well. Her life took a dramatic turn one day in a courtroom where she was given treatment instead of more prison time for her addiction. Today, she's a wife, a mother, and a marketing manager who's all too aware of the power of redemption. Please stay tuned for a special conversation with Leanna Davison. This is Your True North, a program that uses stories to help you discover your best self. I'm your host, Cindy Camp. Please join me as I ask people from all walks of life how they've used core values as a moral compass guiding life and career decisions. Are you seeking your true north? Then welcome. Welcome, Leanna Davison. Uh, you've had a fascinating life story, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you today. So glad that you're with me on your true north. Thank you for having me. I, you've spent years in prison for drug offenses, and you battled addiction for a long time. Would you talk about your journey and how you went from being a well-adjusted college student with a sports scholarship to becoming a convicted offender who lived for years in a prison cell? Oh, sure. Um, growing up, um, I, I had a wonderful life. Um, growing up, I had a wonderful childhood, wonderful parents, sisters. Um, I was an honor roll student. <clears throat> I... Um, was a gifted athlete. I pitched in the Little League World Series when I was 12 years old, the first girls team in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. So um, I, I was the one least likely to, at they thought, um, go down the path that I went down. And it was nothing about how I was raised uh, that led me to those poor choices. Um, I earned a full academic athletic scholarship and was at Valparaiso University at NCAA Division II. I played basketball and baseball, and um, I was a student there uh, my freshman year in college. So up to that point in time, there were no signs of uh, poor choices, uh, involvement with the law, anything like that. My freshman year in college, when I went to the when I went to Valparaiso University, the drinking age was 18, and coming from Michigan, where I wasn't yet able to drink, when I went to college, I was immediately um, allowed to drink alcohol, and I was not good at it. So uh, that, and but it wasn't against the law. So I went to parties with friends and, and in college, as college students do, and. Uh, I had no idea that I had the disease of addiction, and my first uh, blackout on my 19th birthday at college was when I was nine. I turned 19, 
and at my freshman year in college, and they found me passed out in the bathroom in the men's fraternity house. And uh, right now, to this day, I do not know how I made it back to my dorm room. I don't know. I have no memory of what happened. Um, I, and at that time, I thought that was normal. Oh, and it was everyone thought it was funny, and I, I had no idea that I had a very serious disease of addiction. Yeah, and I'm going to ask you because I know drinking mm-hmm. in college is, of course, something that it's sort of a rite of passage, and many college students right. party and drink, whether it's legal or not. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Was it very quick for you that you went from having, you know, a couple of drinks to, as you said, passing out and, and blacking out, or had that happened sort of progressively over your first year? Well, for me, um, for me, I... I I did not even like the taste of alcohol, but I liked the effect. Mm. So I knew I could, by drinking, I learned that I could change how I feel. So um, I could become uh, more brave, more talkative, more likable in my mind is what I thought. And it went quickly from... uh, Drinking, having a drink, I, I, because of the of the disease that I have, I, that I know I have today, I, you know, one is too many, and a thousand is never enough. So, I did not know how to stop. That is such a powerful um, statement about addiction. One is yes. too many, and a thousand is never enough. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and today I know today because of the knowledge I have of the disease, I know that. But at the time, I just thought it was normal. I didn't know that other people didn't black out. It was, and it was like you said, the rite of passage. I'm, oh, I'm in college. I can drink now. I had no idea uh, about the killer disease that I that I was finding out about myself. So, <clears throat> excuse me. You you mentioned passing out, blacking out at a party, mm-hmm. and friends getting you home, but you having almost no memory of how that happened. How did Correct. the rest of your college career play out for you? Were you able to maintain your grades and your a- academic? Your, were you playing on both teams, both baseball and, and basketball? Well, that first summer after my freshman year, after that blackout, that summer my roommate was from my roommate and I tried cocaine for the first time at a party that summer right after my freshman year. And today I know that I was addicted that very first time. And I, at the time, I I was instantly in love with how that made me feel, and that I could change my feeling. And I I stopped drinking because it lessened the effect of the cocaine, and it helped me to stay thin. I you know because uh, obviously cocaine you don't eat, and so uh, I was able to. I call it the juggling act. I was act. I was able to do the juggling act for a, a couple years after that, um, trying to just party on the weekends. You know, tried it every way that I thought I could do both, manipulate this uh, my life and do both to attend college and um, and work and um, um, use drug. You know, party and use drugs. Uh, but six. Only six short years later, six years after my full scholarship, six years later, I was a homeless, drug-addicted prostitute living on the streets of Grand Rapids, Michigan, 
ready and willing to do anything for my next fix. So, your so life, that's how fast it happened for me. Yeah, your life spun out of control so quickly. And, and that's six yes. years after starting college or six years after completing it? And did you complete college? After starting. After starting. After so, starting. So you were in your mid-20s, and your life had already taken yep. this incredible turn toward addiction. Yes. And, and really crime, uh, you know, working as a prostitute. Yes. Well, I say that that first time when my roommate and I tried that first time, I always say, and the downward spiral began. And it was an endless pit, a, bot- a pit with an endless bottom that... I, I had never been in trouble, so I never. I it took me a it took a while for me to get incarcerated because first they would try probation and this and that. I I was first arrested in 1987, and at first I had no record of any kind, so I didn't get locked up right away. But every time I every but I did not stop doing what I was doing, so I the penalty continued to get worse and more, you know each time that I was. Um, in trouble. And all of my crimes were directly related to substance abuse, getting uh, and wanting more. Uh, what was your state of mind at this point in your life? Were you fully aware that your addiction had spiraled so far out of control, or uh, were you not even really cognizant of, of that? Were you simply focused on finding drugs and uh, partying and whatever went with it? Well, I did not graduate. I left college and started to work because, in my mind, I would have more money to use more drugs. And I, my story was that I would go back and finish one day. So I did not graduate. I left college to, to work and then to, so I could have more money and so I could use more drugs. But then I eventually was fired from that any job I had, and I, and that's when I went to the streets to because I needed more money to buy more drugs. So at that my state of mind at that point of time was in a totally different on a totally different planet than anything I knew. You know, I know today that the disease of addiction hijacks your brain. So I was in no form of reality. You know, I would tell anyone who asked me or tell myself even that I can stop whenever I want to. And that today I know that that was not true. I could not stop. I could not stop using my whole life. Did your family in touch with you at this time, or were you really just living independently and not not having any contact with them? Well, they wanted to be in touch with me. And for me, uh, I used isolation as a tool in my addiction because I did not want them to know the things I was doing. And I can't imagine how many nights my my poor mother did not sleep because she didn't they did not know where I was and they would try to help me and they would they would come and try to find me and they would and um they would always try to reach out to me and I think a lot of it was now you know that we've in in recovery and I can look back and know that many people don't understand the disease of addiction so trying to help someone um, by giving giving me money and buying me a car and those kind of things weren't were actually enabling my addiction more 
you know, not that I don't, don't get me wrong, they aren't to blame for my poor choices, but they tried so hard to help me, but they didn't know how to help. Um, I remember my dad wanted to, he said, I, I want you to go to the Betty Ford Clinic, and I'm buying the ticket right now. And I said, Dad, don't waste your money, because I don't want to stop getting high. And I, I mean, his heart was just broken. Um, how long did that go on? 20 years of my life. For 20 years of my life that I was finding ways and means to get more. And every time and I would get in, I would be in, I would get locked up. Praise God for that because um, I would, was able, then I, either, there are drugs in prison, but not as plentiful as they are on the streets. So You're I would about get that drugs? little rest. Illegal or, or lugs, drugs that are prescribed by healthcare professionals? In prison? Yeah. Two of my felony drug charges were inside the penitentiary. Wow. So you could get illegal drugs there without too much absolutely. trouble? Yeah. Okay. No, tr- absolutely. Okay. And so those 20 years were, and every time I was released, I would probably many times have good intentions, but I would go back to the same exact, every single time I would go back, every single time. I would go back and end up shortly after in the same, doing the same thing, expecting different results. I, I'm just thinking about now, I know your life intersected with Judge William Schmays. Uh, he was also a guest on Your True North earlier this year, and he set up the first drug treatment court in Michigan, the first, and he was the first person to offer you treatment in place of more prison time. Would you tell us about that day in his courtroom when he offered you treatment instead of more time oh, in prison? Wow. Yes, yes, I will. And and to tell you a little bit more about how bad, it, like a lot of people think, um, how to tell you a little bit more about how bad it was. Like I was, because I want people to know that if I can, if God can change me, he can change anyone. I was the worst kind of drug addict. I wasn't like once in a while user. I was, uh, one day I stayed up for 11 days in a row without sleep because I used to live and lived to use. I was raped, stabbed, handcuffed to a railroad track and left for dead. I was, I had my firstborn child in the penitentiary handcuffed to a bed. And none of those things made me stop. So the, the thing is that that the drug that the an addict like myself is that's not a bad person trying to get good it's a sick person who does not know how to get well and I, then well i i'm just going to go say ahead. i'm so glad you're pointing that out yeah. because i think there's still yeah. sometimes that idea that these things have um, a lot of choice involved where is your point yes. this is an illness there's an illness that's underlying um, yes. you know, what you were doing and addiction is a disease. So thank you for yes. helping us understand a little bit more of the control that it had over you. Yes. Yes. So then I had, I get in trouble in Kalamazoo, Michigan and yes, <laughs> finally. And I had been offered previously other kinds of treatment, but nowhere else had where I, um, was in trouble, was there ever a drug treatment court? And Judge Schmay, one of the heroes of my life, 
he saved my life. He saved my life. So, June 26, 2006, and I had a baby boy. Now imagine this, my firstborn child I had in prison, handcuffed to a bed, and my dad raised her. So I, I wasn't able to raise that child. And my, then God gave us this beautiful baby boy, and I, and I had a, a felony drug charge again. And I was, my guidelines were prison, and I had never met Judge Schmate in my life. And it was a Monday afternoon. I'll never forget the day as long as I live. It was 6 o'clock. I was the last person that day to see him. And he called me up, was on the bench, and he was reading my file. And it took a long time because I have a very long record. And I just knew. I kissed my baby boy in the hallway, and I just prayed that I could see him again. And I went in front of Judge Smay, and he looked down at me after he read through my file. He looked down at me from the bench with the kindest eyes that I have ever seen in the courtroom. And he asked me if about the eighth step of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and I he said, do you know what the eighth step is? And I said, absolutely. M- made, amends to, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became a willing to make amends to them all. And he said, good. And he said, what does that mean to you? Now, this is in a courtroom. I had never in my life had a judge or anyone from the, uh, from the Department of Corrections ask me anything about, and people ask me about, oh, why did, you know, this crime and that crime. But he asked me about the eighth step of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, what that means to me is, is that well, I said what I found is that I can't make do I can't do anything over that I already did, but what I know today is that I can do today, and that if I can learn how to do the next right thing, that's the amend, mm. and that's all anyone ever wanted anyway. If I could just stay sober, I think he wanted to know was I serious about recovery, mm. like did I know about the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and was I ready? Because one thing about addiction too is, you know, I had to be willing. That's all I had to do. I had to do the work, but I had to become willing. I had to want to be sober. I had to want it. And before, before that, if I, and I had to work just as hard at being sober as I did at getting high. So that was overtime, you know, so but he, he wanted to know, I think, that he wanted to know, did I have any knowledge of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and did I know what that, what that meant, mm-hmm. what, this, what those steps meant? And, that, and also, and if I, I, I believe if I would not have answered that that day, he would have told me. He would have shared that with me to let me know that there, there was a solution. And that's what he said to me. He said, he said, you know, 
we have this program here in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and it's called the Drug Treatment Court Program. And I had no idea that he's in the Drug Court National Drug Court Hall of Fame. I'm standing in front of him by no accident. Well, he started the very first drug court in Michigan. Right. Yeah, so he was really he, instrumental here in getting this um, off the yes. ground. So you were in yes, front of the right and he person started that the day. First- Right. Divine intervention puts me once again in the right place at the right time. And he and he also started the first gender gender based um pro drug tree park program in the country. So he's the first one who had the thought to separate the men and women in the program, which was genius. You know, women have different issues than men. And that day, he said, we have this program in Kalamazoo, Michigan. It's called the Drug Treatment Court Program. And he said, um, I think you'd be a good candidate for the program. And I could not imagine that I was, at that point in time, that I was a good candidate for anything. I felt filthy and guilty and full of shame and regret. And um, and he he didn't throw me away. Well, and I, I'm imagining that that beautiful baby boy you had kissed in the hallway was also in your mind somewhere yes. that you had such a, a motivation as well as this kind, knowledgeable judge who was offering you a different yes. path. I find myself yes. wondering how you, how no one offered it sooner, but I guess drug treatment courts were still newer 15 years ago, 10 years ago, so... Um, Correct. Yeah, so... so you, exactly right. Did, did you immediately say, yes, I, I would like to try this? Well, what I heard him say, because remember, I st- was still in my very sick mind, and what I heard him say was that I could maybe go home <laughs> instead of go to prison that day. And so, you know, to, um, when and I said to him, and he said, I said, does that mean I can go home? And he said, yes, it does. He said, but I want to I give you one chance at this drug treatment court. And he said, if you really want to stop using drugs, they will show you how, and you never have to use again. And I've been sober since that day. Wow. I had never been sober for more than 90 days since I was 19 years old, including the time I was incarcerated. So, And, and just so yeah. we have a, a full sense, how many years did you spend in, in jail or prison? Uh, be- Ten and a half years. It's a lot of time. Leanna, I want to ask you about the guiding principles or values that you live according to. If you could name three of those and, and tell us a little story that helps us understand why those values or principles are so important to you. Well, I think for me, um, number one is love God and love others. And, and that covers, to me, that covers a lot. And um, when I, I I was born and raised in the UP, and my my great grandparents came from Finland, and my grandmother, who wrote me letters even in prison, and um, never gave up on me. And when she passed away, she was ninety seven, and she passed away. We went to her funeral, and she um, there were some young men at the oh they weren't. Uh, at the funeral, and they told us that day that my grandmother had every year bought them shoes because they didn't have shoes. And no one ever knew that until she 
passed away that so she did I'm saying that she did things not so people would know but she did it to love others and with and and my mother after her was the same way she took the choir robes that they were throwing out and made mission quilts for the children in in other countries and she so that 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 love loving others that you know I'm so blessed to come from um people who showed me how to do that love god love others um, especially people who, and especially people like myself, especially who we're really supposed to love as the people who are unlovable. You know, I'm, I'm sure I wasn't that lovable that day. And, um, and, and to, to love, if love God and love others, that covers a lot. I feel like that covers a lot of things. I'll do that. Yeah, and, and that you had unconditional love shown to you by parents who kept yes. trying to help, a grandmother who kept writing oh letters, gosh, yes. Judge Schmay, yes. who looked at you with yes. kindness at 6 o'clock yes. on Monday night when I'm sure he was tired from a long day. Right. <laughs> yes. But he could see that offering you a, a chance to get well might really change your life. Yes. Um, yes. He believed in me when when I didn't even believe in myself and nobody else either. Yes. Well, let me ask yes. you about, and I, you've talked a little bit about your family. Um, I, mm-hmm. I call this sort of a values origin story. Um, the key influences uh-huh. in your life, whether from your childhood, from this period of recovery, um, where do you really think that your values are, are rooted? Well, I... For me, I, I just you know I always put it's God first, but where the so I think where that came through is uh, my parents. I had wonderful parents. I mean, my mom was so kind and so humble. <laughs> wow, and gave me the gift of faith, and and not just told me about it, but showed it to me. And my dad, the gift of strength, his work ethic, and and another one of my heroes. And they never stopped loving me. And that, that was, you know, I don't know, it was incredibly for, for them as parents, I don't, um, I'm so thankful. You know, that's the thing about when, um, when you were talking about the values too, you know, that goes with the love and loving God and loving the others, integrity that they showed me to do the next right thing, especially when no one's watching. And to have an attitude of gratitude, to always be thankful, you know, that's, Gratitude changes everything. I mean, I woke up again today. Praise God. There's breath in my body. You know, I, and I have, I have a, so much to be thankful for, but every day, everyone has, we all are, a whole, we're waking up with breath. We're ahead of a whole bunch of other folks. The rest is extra, you know. You and I exchanged some email messages, and I was really struck by, as you're saying, gratitude, but also the joy that you exist. Um, and it's yes. not like your recovery happened six months or a year ago. I mean, you're, you know, 13 years, but yet it sounds like you really yes. keep that sense of joy and gratitude right at the oh center my of gosh. who you are. Oh my gosh. I'm so incredibly thankful. When Judge Shmay handed me off to uh, a lady named Kedra Young, and she was young, a lot younger than I was, but she she invited us to, she was my case manager. She invited us to church you know, I mean, she was a key person, um, started to feed into me. And once I started to get back in my right mind, because do you know it takes two and a half years of complete and total abstinence for a person 
brain connections to be reconnected after addiction. Who knows that? No wonder people relapse. Right. Two and a half years. That's yeah, a lot. So when time. I yes, and to get to that point now, for me, it's so easy to be thankful because I have so much to be thankful for, and I don't mean in things. I mean that I'm alive. Praise God! It's a miracle. And I I know I could tell you story after story after story about how God showed up in my life, just kept showing up and kept putting these people, these angels who kept coming in my life that to, 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 to help me, I call it the reckless love of God. Like it's, his love is promiscuous. His grace is promiscuous. It's loose. It goes everywhere. And he left the 99 to come for me and make, I'm so thankful. So it's really easy for me every day to get up. I, I'm joyous. Oh, it's so it's so easy. <laughs> but what I also try to do is, my mom prayed since I was a baby for me to be a window for His light to shine through. So it's important for me too. I know that I keep what I have by giving it away. It's no good if it's just left inside. Like I get to, I get to, and I I never really knew what that meant until I'm now that I'm, I'm just, I think I'm just now really learning the window for his light so other people can get it too. It's my responsibility because it was given to me. I keep what I have by giving it away. And, and, and that is, that's where it really comes from. Now I get to help others. Wow. Like I, I just have, I have so much gratitude in my heart. I can hardly hold it in sometimes. Well, that's a wonderful place to be. And and you mentioned <laughs> yes. your case manager. I'm wondering if you can give us yes. a, a little idea of what happened for you in those two and a half years when you were working hard uh, to stay away from drugs, to recover. Uh, what role did the case manager play and what were the things that you did during those two and a half years? Well, um, Judge May with his wisdom. Oh, gosh. So he sentenced my husband and myself. He said we both had to do the program for it to work. And what a genius. What, how, we're the first married couple that graduated from the drug treatment court. We both gra- are graduates. Wow. So, so you were married I was able while to, in prison? You were married at, at some point before this day in the courtroom? Oh, another wonderful part of my life is this my my husband, who God gave me this man who he married me in prison. Is that where you <laughs> met? Did you meet in prison? No, 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 no. He when I met him, he I met him in my I was still in my mess, and he the I'll never forget. He when I met him, he said, and I said, and he wanted to go talk to me and start spending time with me and everything like this. And I said, you don't even know me, you you really don't want to be in my life. And he said, you know what? And I started telling him, like, I, I was a prostitute. And, he, you know, he said, you know what? I'm going to start praying for you. And I was rolling my eyes like, whatever, you know. <laughs> and he just stuck by me. And he asked me to marry him that first year, and I said, you don't know me well enough. And he asked me to marry him the second year, and I said, you still don't know me. And the third year he convinced me to turn myself in for a, for an old charge and I told him they were going to send me to prison. He said, I'll stick by you. And he kept, this is before drug treatment court, and he kept bothering me and bothering me like, you need to turn yourself in. And I did, finally did. And they sent me back to prison that last time I, before I went in front of Judge May, I served two to 20 on my last bit. And um, 
he stuck by me. And I thought, you know, if this guy, if this man sticks by me, this is the one for me. And if he doesn't, he wasn't, he wasn't for me anyway. And he married me in prison inside the penitentiary that last time. But what, yes. what are the components? And can I tell you right now, today, right now, today, that little boy in the hallway has never seen his mom or his dad under the influence of any drugs or alcohol. Oh, wow. And how <laughs> old is he, that little boy? Oh, he's six foot two. Wow. <laughs> he's in the eighth grade. Wow. <laughs> and he's an all-A student oh, and a gifted athlete. Congratulations. Yeah, we're just... Oh my gosh! Thank you. I'm so lucky to be his mom. So proud. He's such. He's the best boy. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that is a beautiful. But how it could have been so different? They would have taken him. They were going to take him from me. Wow. So your recovery. You started down a path that took you two and a half years. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing you did a lot of intensive therapy and group work. Coming. Clean? No, I, I think one of the the wonderful things that's one of the wonderful things about the drug treatment court program is that. They um, they te- they taught me how to live life on life's terms, not being locked up. So um, you have to and you have to give a urine specimen every other day, and it's a chemical. It's a it goes to the. I mean, it goes to the uh, laboratory. So it's one that you can't cheat on, which was really powerful for me. Like I had never had a dirty urine of my probation because I I cheated all the time. To be honest with you. For all those years before that, but in drug treatment court, they pay for a very expensive test every time that goes to the lab, and you cannot cheat. And so that was really good for me. Like I had to really not use drugs. Yeah. <laughs> That's bad. And and the penalty is getting locked up. And but the first day we went to court, I'll never. So Judge Schmay handed me over to this. Uh, totally, and it was totally intentional. I know now. He knew that Kedra would be. I would be under Kedra, and she was. Oh my gosh, she's right now. She's my mentor, my friend. I. She. That was another game changer right there. She was a fir- a person in Department of Corrections who, the first time we went to, we had to go to court every other Friday. And I called her the day before the first court, after Judge Schman sentenced me, in drug treatment court, you still have to go to court and show up and be held accountable every other Friday. And that first Friday I was had to show up for drug court, I called her. She's my new caseworker. Now, think about it. I'm a person who's been in the system for 20 years. I didn't trust anybody. I, you know, I thought they were trying to play games with me. And I, and I said to her, are you going to lock me up tomorrow? And she said, No. Why would you say? And why would you say that? And I said, Well, you know, I know how the game goes. I'll go to court tomorrow, and you'll put me in handcuffs, and I'll lose my son. And she said, Well, I, you know, we don't operate like that. You know, I said, Do you promise me that I'm not going to jail tomorrow? And she said, I promise. She said, If there's not, if you're, if you're, if there's nothing you're not telling me, you will not go to jail tomorrow. So I showed up in drug treatment court that first time, and she held my son. And I didn't go to jail. And I, you know, I afterwards was able to tell her how much it meant to me that she was honest. She, and she took me in her office and she said, Leanna, as long as you're telling me the truth, I will not lock you up. And it was this new philosophy of treat of uh, the corrections of that. Wow, this is, this is awesome. I can do this. Yeah, it sounds and so she different. helped me know that. So yes. From your previous experience yes. of this cycling yes. out of prison. Yes. Yes. And so 
I, I knew that I could trust her. And my, and my husband, Jimmy, had a stroke when we were in drug court. He had a, when he had to go in the hospital. And he was there for, oh, gosh, I, two or three weeks, maybe a month. I mean, it was his high blood pressure uh, gave him a stroke. And, and um, so here I was with the baby, and he was in the hospital. We were both in drug court. And I rushed him to the hospital, and the first person who showed up was Kedra. With flowers, and you said you still yep, have a relationship did. with her today, right? Oh yes, absolutely yes. Game changer, <laughs> because if nothing changes, nothing changes. And in in recovery, I had to change everything. So all new friends, all new, you know, people who weren't really my friends anyway, all new relationships, all new, everything is new. But that you know today. And, and another instrumental, gigantic person in my life, meeting my my boss and his wife. When I was recently, when I was just in, new in drug treatment court, well, before I went to see Judge May, I knew that it would be good if I had a job, so I had went and got a, I think I was making probably seven fifty an hour at this telemarketing room, because in my mind I thought, well, if I have a job, maybe that would help. Mm. So I go, so I'm working at this in this as a telemarketer, and um, we're working for many different companies. And as I, but I, then I was sentenced to the drug treatment court working as a telemarketer, and I started, I was pretty good at it because I could talk good <laughs> from my previous life experience. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the, uh, one of the companies who we were marketing for, um, he, approached me and asked me if I would come and work for his company instead of for the marketing company. And I said, you know, I want to, well, I would have to talk to my boss because I'm a very loyal person. And I said, plus, you know, there are a lot of things that you don't know about me, you know, that I, that I would want you to know before I said yes. So he said, okay, well, meet me in my office on Monday. And I met him in his office, and and I told him the whole story because what had happened to me in other jobs previously was I did people didn't know my background, and then when they found out, I would get fired, mm-hmm. and I did not want that to happen. So I sat down. His name is Nathan. I sat down with Nate, and I said, "I want you to know this these things about my past. I was a drug addict. I was a prostitute. I have felony drug convictions. I would serve time in pr- 10 and a half years in prison. So I tell him the whole long, drawn-out story. He doesn't say one word for the whole conversation. I'm almost in tears. And he says, are you done? And I'm like, yep, that's it. Is that everything? I said, yep. He said, he said you know what, Leanna? I couldn't care less what you did yesterday. All I care about is what you're doing for my company today, and I would like you to come aboard. Mm-hmm. He said, and, and I, I said, I just couldn't, almost couldn't believe it. And I, he said, and I'm going to tell you two things today. Number one, I will never, ever repeat this conversation that we had. I will never tell anyone. And number two, he said, number two, I will never hold it against you. And it meant so much to me. Yeah. Here was this person who I, I was honest. I told him, and he didn't care. He cared about, he's, he, another. here's another person entering my life who believed in me. Do you know that I'm working for that man and his wife right now today? Oh, 
Well, that's like another absolution, you know, Judge Schmidt. Yeah. Gave you an opportunity, and now you're yes. your boss, uh, Nathan. Another person yes. who was willing to believe in you, Kendra, your caseworker. Um, yes. It's beautiful that you see that and you've built relationships with these people. Um, oh, my gosh. I'm so thankful. And I don't think that they even, he, Nate, I don't think his boss, my boss and his wife, I don't think they even know, like, I tell them, but I don't think they even know how, what a big, or because they're not, they don't have the disease that I had. And so that, so they don't understand, like, it's a gigantic part of my recovery that I have, he gave me this opportunity. So I want to pause and remind our listeners, this is Your True North, and my guest today is Leanna Davison. Leanna went to college on a sports and academic scholarship, but as a result of addiction, she found herself in prison for many years. It was only after Judge William Schmay offered her treatment in his Kalamazoo, Michigan courtroom that she got the help she needed. Today she works uh, full-time. She devotes herself to her family and her community. And I'm going to follow up what we were just talking about and ask you about your values and your work and how you live, I guess, your, your sense of your values in your, in your job today? Well, uh, one of the main things that Nathan has taught me is to lead by example. And I think I, I, my dad and mom taught me that too, but in, in my job, to lead by example. And he's taught me how being a manager isn't just a title. Uh, you know, you can be a manager and be and have a title, or you can be a manager and have earned your title. And so he's really just breathed this life into me about leading and leadership and in books and how he mentors me and um I'm able to and he gives me a lot of freedom um in hiring and so what I I have the just the privilege of being able to now hire and train my own people and of course I give people chances like the chance that was given to me and I get to take people who Maybe they had something going on in their life, and then I can, I can give them that opportunity. And it doesn't work every time, and that's okay. But sometimes it does work, and I can. So I, it's really important to me to lead by example, and to, and that's that loving God and loving others, like doing, and and always doing the next right thing in every situation, even especially when no one's watching, to lead like that because it inspires other people to do the same. And it, and, and, it, and it breathes what I see happening all around me. I get to see life being, being breathed into other people that maybe they didn't have confidence, maybe they didn't know they had gifts. But, in, you know, when I think about my grandmother and the, the, um, the shoes that, you know, that you do something for someone and, and you don't even tell anyone, that's when you're really giving, right? We didn't even know till she passed away. Who knows how many things she did for people. And my mother was the same way. And I want to be able to, uh, to, uh, to for our son to have that same heart. So um, I want to give you an, a, a year before last, um, J.D. is a very gifted athlete, and he played on a team and in the summertime. And one of the boys didn't have... Um, didn't have basketball shoes, and um, what? And I, we, when we got home that night from practice, I told JD, I said, I need you to go in your room, and I want you to pick out your best pair of size 11s. And he came back and he brought them out, and I said, I want you to bring those to the coach and tell the coach those are for the boy who doesn't have shoes. 
and he never questioned me about it. Like he didn't say, "Oh, mom, like I don't want to," you know. And and he he did it willingly. And I and I so the next year, and I we didn't, you know, we didn't. I just said that's the right thing to do. And I didn't say go get a pair of your raggedy shoes, right? I didn't go say. So I trying to help show him the importance of giving and loving. And the next year, so that was two years ago, so last year, he came to me and he said, Mom, is it, he said, there's another boy that doesn't have shoes. Is it okay if I give him, the, give him this pair? And so that was last year. And I tell you what that meant to me as a mom, like he gets it. And and for young people, if they've if they've not and and I uh, the other thing is like I want people to know that I'm not the things that I've been doing that I've done. I'm not proud of that. The reason I share it is I hope that someone can take my trash and pick it up, and and if it can be used for good, that's wonderful. Because and I feel like it's my responsibility to help the next person. If it helps one person, worth it. And if for young people, if you never used, if you never don't, the the biggest thing I can tell you is don't ever pick up. Just don't ever do it. If you never do it, you don't ever have to worry about it. If you do pick up and you do go down that path and it does get dark, what I want you to know is there's hope. And like I said earlier, if God changed me, he can change anyone all I, I had to become willing. So you might have a, be a person who you have a family member who's they're using and you don't know how to help them. You can't, there's nothing you can do until they're ready. They have to be willing. I had to be willing. But once they become willing, God can change anyone. Well, and Leanna, for someone who might be listening and thinking about, yeah, I don't want to get to that place where I'm sitting in a prison cell and having to go into right. a courtroom before I, I get my life turned mm-hmm. around, what would you advise? Uh, do you believe and like 12 step or? Uh, what a great, great question because you don't have to, you know, that relapse isn't a requirement, right? So, and you don't have to, you have to get in drug court, you have to be in trouble. So, you know, so that's a really great question. And, and um, the 12 step program is the most wonderful life saving program on the planet and it's free and they're everywhere. And that's a re- actually a requirement of drug court. You have to do 12 steps. And and um, so I say this all the time, like, everyone in the world should use the 12 steps, even if they're not an alcoholic. Just use the 12 steps, like, love God, serve others, clean house. Yeah, because they're full of... <laughs> I mean, it's... In addition to the 12 steps, I know you had your case manager, you had excellent yes. support from, um, I'm guessing, yes. uh, counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, yes. lots of good yep. health care to supplement what you got in the 12-step program. Would you describe the treatment, the specific things that you received through drug treatment court that helped you on your road to recovery? Yes, absolutely. Um, drug treatment court has a program set up in specific order and of um, step one, do this, step two, do this. Because early in recovery, uh, just putting one foot in front of the other is so important and that most of us didn't know how to do that. So the pieces of that program are, um, um, the first thing you get is a case manager and because every person is different. 
and maybe their one person's recovery wouldn't look like the next person. But that initial interview with your caseworker, then that she that person makes a makes a roadmap to your final destination. And so that, for my case, and for for most, uh, many some of the things are mandatory. Counseling is mandatory. Group therapy is mandatory. Meeting with your case manager every week is mandatory. Going to court in front of the judge is mandatory. Urine drops are mandatory. Um, um, Twelve steps are mandatory. Uh, the first 90 days, you have to do 90 meetings in 90 days. If you uh, relapse, you have, to do, you have to start over, which I think is another very powerful tool of the drug treatment court because many times a uh, person in a relapse we just throw people away instead of, you know, think of it as a diabetic. A diabetic eats a cookie. We don't say, okay, well, you're done. We, we're in, in addiction, that person, drug treatment court recognizes that a relapse is not a requirement, but it, 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 is, it could be part of the, uh, the learning process of getting sober. So there are consequences but we don't throw that we don't throw that person away. I'm going to ask and, you a question uh, about that because yeah. I know when we mm-hmm. talked the first time, you mentioned that you were given the opportunity to take treatment yes. instead of prison, but you were told yes. that you really had to be serious about it because otherwise you would end up back in prison. So is there a point yes. at which when you get to be a certain um, place in your treatment where now you don't have to to consider prison anymore, where now you're well enough that that even if you have a relapse, it wouldn't mean going back to prison? Um, Today? Are you speaking of today? Well, just during the, like, your first couple of years. Oh. Post, you know, as you got into drug treatment. In the court. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Every person is different. So if the person, for me, I was I was so blessed that I had all of these angels in my corner in my life at the exact right time and I graduated uh, when I was sentenced on June 26, 2006. I've been sober since that day. So I did not have any um I didn't have any violations, so I was able to graduate um from the program at the minimum after 15 months I graduated from the program and then but then I was on probation for another I believe another 12 months after the program after graduating from the program so but in that time if I would have relapsed in the treatment would not have gone back to prison the first time on the first relapse I would have had to start the program over from the beginning so that's the consequence um, I would have to go to a person would have to go and spend three days in jail for the weekend, and then Monday start over and start from the beginning, and your fifteen months starts over so, every time. So there's a now, second chance, a pers- even if yes, yeah, third, uh, yeah, even a third. A chance. person can be in yes, a person can be in the drug treatment court up to five years, and some people do take that long, and it's okay. Now, let me ask you so about... We, we don't stop trying. Yeah, I, I'm curious. So what role does medication play? Now, uh, whether or not you needed medication, but just generally, mm-hmm. is medication often a part of the treatment for addiction? Well, for me, I, I, I had no medication. So that day when I was sentenced, I was free of all, have been free of all drugs and alcohol, including prescription medication since that day. For some people... 
when they meet with their case manager, maybe that is a part of what what's necessary for that for their recovery, and that's okay. If the, every person is different, a, um, a person might need that might be something a person needs, um, especially with uh, alcohol withdrawal and um, um, opiate withdrawal. That might be a very necessary part of their prescription for success. Um, I was I that was not any that I did not have any medication, but some people do. Yeah, and my understanding is often medication is an important component of treatment. Um, you know, as you're saying, not everybody, but many people do mm-hmm. use medication sure. to help transition from. Um, highly addictive illegal drugs and and to manage as you said this is a medical condition so how best to manage yes. that condition right uh, Leanna, what impact does treatment have on recidivism what a great question and important question so um, statistically a person who commits a, a felony after they are released from incarceration will commit another felony, 85% of those people will commit another crime within two years of their release. That's a, that's a statistic that we know is a fact. Now, enter drug treatment court. The drug treatment court has reversed the statistic. So 85% of the people who graduate from drug treatment court never reoffend. The statistic is completely reversed. Yeah, so instead of having 85% going back into the system committing another crime, instead it's only about 15% for those who've gone Correct. through treatment court. Yeah, that's a huge win. Gosh, Correct. Talk about flipping the numbers and giving so many yes. more people a meaningful recovery and life after yes. prison. Yeah. And the cost, think of the cost. The cost, the cost of a one year of incarceration is $32,000. The Cadillac Drug Treatment Court, the best of the best, even if you're in the system, even if you're in the program for five years, that cost is only $4,200. Yeah. So, And then think about how much that impacts the rest of their kids aren't in the system. I'm no longer receiving benefits. I'm working. I'm paying taxes. Uh, so even in ways that we can't even measure, I'm not stealing. <laughs> it's like... Yeah. It's crazy. And Leanna, I know you you mentioned when you were kind of in this revolving door cycle of mm-hmm. uh, crime and being incarcerated. I know you mentioned prostitution and you just said stealing um, yes. was it, and I know a lot of this centered around your addiction and just being able to continue to get the drugs that you were addicted to. Um, but I'm 100%. wondering Yeah, I'm wondering if opioids were any part of um, your drug abuse. Uh, history, because opioids have become such a, a big national crisis. So I'm mm-hmm. wondering if, if you used opioids at all. Well, Cindy, I tried everything. So if it, I tried, I mean, alcohol, amphetamine, cocaine, I ended up, my drug of choice was crack cocaine, um, opioids. I, I tried everything. My drug of choice was crack cocaine. So I think for each person, their drug of choice, you know, every person, it, could, it can be something different. It can be alcohol um, and would still be, that's still the same disease. 
right? It's all in a, an underlying issue of addiction. Um, yes. And and for you, crack cocaine was the thing. Did it give you the most intense high, or was it the easiest to get? Um, it was the easiest to get at the time, but it also um, it it has a heightened effect um, more than the powder the cocaine. The the powder form, the um, crack cocaine has a has a more intense effect. Um, than the powder cocaine. So that was the the drug that you were using most often. I'm wondering about your perspective now as somebody who's been through drug treatment court and has now gone on to have a very full and meaningful life outside of um, crime and prison. Uh, As we talked about, you have experienced recovery and healing, but what is your perspective on the use of opioids, which have become, it's become so prevalent and they're so widely available um, just, I'm so curious from your point of view, what you think about people who are coping with opioids today. Well, I, I know that the drug treatment court works for, for, any, for every substance, including opioids. I know people who I graduated with, were, I was in the program with them, and that we had different drugs of choice, but the program worked for both of us. So, um, my, and what I what I believe has to change is how we think about drug addiction. We, in our, we think that um, these are criminals and bad people, but I never saw another pair of handcuffs after my disease, after I, my, I was treated for my disease. And, and I know that that's true for anyone. Most people don't, don't grow up and say, oh, I, I want to be a heroin addict or I want to be a crack addict. People have hopes and dreams and, or an alcoholic or anything else. And when, they, when, we're, when that happens, we as society, we say, oh, that's a bad person. Let's not, let's, let's not help them. When that person in their right mind is a, is a, a, can be an acceptable, responsible, productive member of society, that's two different people. It's the addict and the person. And if, and if we can, as a society, learn how to look at this as a disease and treat the person, they, then, the, then the crime goes away. Yeah, I really appreciate you emphasizing that because I think there's still that stigma and that issue of sort yes. of like the idea that there's some character defect involved instead right. of recognizing the illness of addiction and understanding that, as you said, like whether you're thinking of diabetes or cardiovascular disease, cancer, right. depression, these are all things that are illnesses that need treatment. Um, and so yes. when people are engaged and, and taking the, the treatment that's available, it can make such a difference. Yes. It's a different person. I'm not the same person. Yeah. Well, you've gone on to and have I'm so thankful. Yeah, <laughs> such a full life. Um, now 13 yes. years uh, as a result of drug treatment court, you're, you're working, yes. you've got a family. Uh, is there anything yes. else you want to tell us about your life story or what you've learned? The power of prayer and that when you asked me what other people could do for somebody, if you know someone, and and I had a praying family, and my grandmother and my and my entire family was praying for me when I didn't have enough sense to pray for myself, and um, 
when she met my our son as her youngest great grandchild, and she was almost ninety seven when she passed away. And she when she when we took him to meet her for the first time, she looked at him and she held him and she said, "You know, Leanna," she said, "I didn't used to think that God was listening to me when I was praying for you, and now I know that He was." And so, the power of prayer that you know we can cover, and and that I didn't die. You know, 11 girls, uh, prostitutes on the streets of Grand Rapids were killed during the same exact time when I was in the streets. And they were all, had the same look as me, the same hair color, but but not me. And I know that there was protection, angels around me. And we can pray, you know, if, if you can't, you might not be able to have the tools to help them, but you can pray for them. We can. We, that's what you can do. So I wanted to mention that too, the power of, of prayer. Because they need help. Um, so, yes. Yeah, I think there's that, that myth that you have to hit bottom before you get your life turned Right. Around. I think there are people who realize, like, wait, I'm going down a bad path. I need to just change some things. Yes. 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 Stop. Right. You can stop anytime. You can stop when you make that. You have to make a conscious choice. Today's the day. There's the line in the sand. June 26, 2006. I am done. And and if you if I can if you can do that and and you you know the thing is you don't have to stay clean the whole rest of your life in one day all you have to do is one day at a time at first I had to do one hour at a time the other thing is I want people to know is that like just because I put, choose God and I put God first doesn't mean that life is perfect right what it means so like um, Jimmy's mom was struck by lightning and killed my I had breast cancer in twenty. 12 and uh, mastectomy reconstruction 2013 many things my husband needs a kidney right now i'm not one bit worried about it i know that god has already taken care of it it's just a kidney and so what happened when i when i'm saying sharing that to say that no matter what like life still happens the difference is i don't have to use i don't have to use no matter what you're going through there is a way out. Because so I, and I'm saying I don't want people to, like, it wasn't just easy for me. It was hard work. But all I had to do was do the work. Become willing, do the work, and God will keep on showing up. He well, will show up in ways, the most amazing ways, every day. Your life is clearly <laughs> a testament to an incredible amount of resilience. Yes. Um, and I, I just so uh, appreciate that you've been so honest and willing to oh, really yes. talk about hard things and also uh, yes, really spread the credit around to all the people who supported you yes. in your, your years of recovery. Um, I'm going to yes. ask you just a final question, if you have any closing yes. thoughts about living by leading from your values. Well, I want to thank you, Cindy, for having me and for, you know, for the work that you do, because I totally believe that, like, it's, you know, it, that we have to, it's, my, it's our responsibility to share, to tell other people. There's so much the world is negative, 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 and, you know, words change people. We can change our words, but we can change our lives by changing our thoughts. And so it's so important to tell other people the good news and to to spread it like like confetti <laughs> and to to it's and i think too like it's the smallest things that make the biggest difference it's the love it's the kindness it's the gratitude gratitude changes everything 
and um, anybody can, and, and all those things are free. <laughs> uh, well, I'm so. I'm so grateful to you, Leanna Davison, and I'm also going to just say a thank oh, you to Judge William Schmay. I'm sure he'll, he'll listen, <laughs> um, that he connected the two of us. It's just been a oh, delight. Oh, I love him. Yeah, he's He's such a, a special person. Um, a delight to oh, talk with gosh. you today. And I, I really want to oh, thank, thank you. thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for sharing your story. I'm also going to thank Absolutely our listeners. I want to thank our listeners out there for tuning in to Your True North. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, and we invite you to subscribe so you get our most recent episodes as soon as they're available. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Your True North Podcasts. Our producer is Sean O'Melia. Our social media coordinator is Cassie Button. And our intern is Sophie Fisher. I'm your host, Cindy Camp. Please join us again for another conversation about values as a compass for life's journey.